As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey, while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. I am thrilled to be joined with Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada's Kelly Rudy for this episode. Kelly, first of all, thanks a lot for doing this. I'm so happy we're finally able to connect here. Yeah, right. My pleasure, uh, Craig. It's been a while, and uh, I'm really looking forward to our chat. I remember, um, this is, um, gosh, this is going to go way back. I... You must have had me on Hockey Night in Canada Radio when I was starting out as a young hockey writer uh, covering the Atlanta Thrashers, and they had just traded for Alexei Zitnik. I think this is true. If, and, and oh, you wow. Might have to, okay, yeah. It, it, who you had, you know, I think you had played with them, and so you, and I didn't, and I was just starting out, and I didn't know a lot about him, and you were, like, genuinely curious about, like, his fit and how he was, and I really had, didn't have great questions, and I just remember panicking as a young kid. <laughs> Well, and, and then you were soon to find out that uh, Alex Jitnik was a uh, superb hockey player. He was a fantastic defenseman, uh, very underrated. Like when we were in L.A., uh, Jitnik, uh, we drafted Jitnik. And that year uh, that we went to the finals, we had three phenomenal young defensemen. We had Rob Blake, Daryl Sador, and Alex mm. Jitnik. We also had some uh, tremendous veterans like uh, – Tom Laidlaw or uh, Tim Waters yeah. and uh, Marty McSorley and Charlie Huddy and so on. But those young defensemen were just incredible. He was so by the time he got to Atlanta, he was he, he was amazing because I, I loved dealing with the um, veteran Russians who just he, like he would just say anything. He was so chill and calm yeah. and like I ended up being one of my favorite interviews because. He just, you know, he would, like some guys were guarded. He wasn't at all. He didn't care what he was saying. He would be critical. He didn't, you know, this wasn't his team. It was amazing. Right. I loved the guy, but it was awesome. Well, my favorite memories of Alex would have been the 92-93 uh, uh, season. Uh, we played Vancouver in the 93 playoffs in the second round. And, of course, his countryman, Pavel Bure, was lighting mm. it up. Uh, and, and he had this uh, personal, I, I don't know if it's a grudge, but he had this competitive nature about him that he wanted to shut Pavel down so desperately and he did just a, a phenomenal job like I, I'm not sure if uh, Pavel scored in that series uh, he may have because he was such a great player but he certainly wasn't uh, the impactful player that you would have expected he was good like now like now I don't know how to turn this into a, a Zitnik episode but um he was, I th like, if I remember correctly, and again, I was not prepared to go down this path, but that was the Braden-Coburn trade that the Thrashers were kind of in a panic mode to make the playoffs, traded for Keith Kachuk, yeah. traded for Zitnik, and, um, and, and, you know, had never developed a young defenseman. And then Braden-Coburn went on to be, you know, really good NHL player. Um, and Zitnik played maybe two seasons in Atlanta, so didn't work out franchise-wise. But like in terms of the player they're getting, and I didn't know a ton about him. And just he—he he was a guy that was um, just uh, just seemed so savvy, right? Like the, the plays he was making. I like you're right. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if I've even talked about him in ten years, but he is underappreciated. Like he was a good little player. Absolutely, 
great skater, low center of gravity. Yes. Really hit uh, state grade and uh, great first passer. Everything about him is uh, exceptional. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> change the topic. How we went down that road, I don't oh, know, but I liked it. I liked it. Good Me memories. too. Oh my gosh. So, Kelly, this I, I especially wanted to get you on right now. Um, I, I'm, not, you know, we're probably, you know, this episode is probably a week away from airing, but you know, we're just coming out of the Bell Let's Talk day, and, um, and, and you know, you've been an advocate of mental health. We just had on in the athletic. We just had a writer share a very personal story about how. He, uh, how he's dealing with depression and it just seems like everybody is dealing with this in different ways right now and it, you know for one day it's very public and then sometimes it disappears but I think now because of we're all isolated on some level um, you know it, it's it's important to keep keep talking about it and I wanted to start there with you um, first of all how are you doing in and in, in, in dealing with all of this right now uh, well, thanks for asking. I'm doing uh, actually quite well. Um, I'll tell my story here first, and then I'll talk a little bit about our daughter, Caitlin, that uh, she started uh, telling her story a number of years ago. But mm-hmm. uh, I shared a story about my mental health, uh, boy, I want to say about uh, three weeks ago, something like that, a month ago. Mm-hmm. And because I had experienced something, I called it an episode back in uh, 92, 93 again. Um, I, I believe it was my 10th year in the league. And I didn't know it was related to mental health. I just knew that going into that season in the summer, my brain was telling me these things that were uh, really negative and very confusing. And I, I tried to manage my way around those thoughts and tried to overcome them without any uh, help. Um, and and uh, in around uh, late November, those thoughts became uh, pretty much unmanageable to me. I was to find out years later a phrase that Caitlin taught us about the loop. And uh, mm. the loop in my brain was telling me all these things that I can't keep doing it anymore. I'm not that good anymore. The The numbers were not in my favor. I, like I said, my 10th year in the league, I knew the numbers. Most players only play about three, three and a half years. So that was confusing in my head. Uh, just all these things that I remember we had one of those neutral site games in Milwaukee and I basically had a, not a breakdown, but I was close to it in my hotel room the night before I had room service and I had no booze. So I can't attribute any of that to, you know, having a couple of drinks. It was just, my brain was just feeding me all these uh, awful negative thoughts. And somehow I was able to regroup that night. And we played the next day, and I believe I was the first star, and I played a couple more good games. We went home, and then finally it all came uh, to an abrupt end, my my playing well, that is. We played at home, and I believe it was Montreal, and uh, the score was something like 5-5 after the game, and then Barry Melrose came in, and he was talking to us, and, and just talking. It wasn't like he was uh, – you know, uh, you know, in a stern voice or anything, he was just trying to give us some sort of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said something, and even Kelly can play better. And Craig, at that time, I was having my best start ever in the National Hockey League. So I was playing really, really well at this time. Craig. And I remember when Barry said that, and I thought to myself, immediately, the thought that came to my mind was, no, I can't. Yeah. And, and that was the, the end of it for me. I, I just went in a ditch for basically almost two months until luckily for me again, Barry was a a really thoughtful guy and he knew something was going on with me. And and Barry Barry went to great lengths to try and find help for me. In fact, he uh, introduced me to Tony Robbins. And uh, so Tony and I worked one-on-one and uh, man alive, it it, it not only saved my career, maybe more um, because I was able to get out of that place. And I ended up playing five more years. And, and as you know, we went to the finals that year. So I'm forever grateful to uh, Barry for uh, recognizing I needed mental help. And uh, and for that reason, I was able to um, sort of understand the brain a little bit better. And I, I had these drills that Tony gave me. And then I, so I, I had a, a little index card that I laminated with some thoughts on there that were really, really powerful for me. So... The first one, Craig, was uh, 
I think the Gulf War had just ended or was coming to an end around that time. And I, I was glued to the TV all the time when General Norman Schwarzkopf was on because I, I, I just loved as a general how powerful he came across and how self-assured. And, and so that was the first word on my index card, Schwarzkopf, because I had hmm. to believe that in myself when I was playing in net. So um, I had all these negative thoughts and I, I wasn't feeling powerful enough. And so that was a really cool moment. And yeah, that was amazing. And then our daughter, Caitlin, uh, her, how brave she was in 2013 uh, to come out and share her story about her uh, struggles with mental health. And that goes back to, man, she was like 11 years old when that started back in 2004-ish and her path to getting better. And I love the line. I, I don't know if you saw my video from about a month ago and, and her and her husband have this uh, clothing company, uh, More Good Days Clothing, and you can find it on Instagram. But the, the saying is, uh, it's a thing, More Good Days, but there's a garden, uh, a beautiful painted garden that Hayden, her husband, made. And the garden signifies when Kate and I were doing her breathing for her, which might be three hours or half an hour, depending on where she was and what her number might be. If, if we had asked, where are you on a scale of one to ten, or she said, at 10, I knew that we were in for a good maybe three-hour breathing session. But uh, she told us that after about four years of therapy, she was starting to have more good days than bad. And, mm. you know, just thinking of how profound that statement is, and it, it really puts it in perspective about mental health. And I know this is a super long-winded answer, but that sort of, in a nutshell, describes uh, what we've been going through, what Kate's been going through, you know, Craig, so in 2013, when she was going to go public with two national newspapers in Canada, um, I, I, I got really scared the night before. I was in St. Louis doing a playoff game, and, and she was in Calgary. And I, I remember the conversation. I was like, do you really want to go ahead and do this? Because I was so afraid of social media. I thought all the bashers and haters out there you know, might attack her, um, you know, make fun of her, all those things that you're afraid of with the stigma. And much to our surprise, Craig, it was nothing but love. It was just the most heartwarming thing to see uh, the outpouring of support that she received. And, and so, yeah, it's a beautiful topic. Thanks for allowing me that uh, opportunity to talk about it because it's so important. And, and not only because it's during a pandemic, which really is uh, so troublesome for so many people, but it's because it, it's an everyday thing for a lot of people also. Yeah. I loved you did a, a video recently wearing a shirt. It's okay to not be okay, you know. Yeah. And and I and you were like, hey, I, I didn't do a video last week because I it just wasn't a good week right. for me. And it's I don't know to see other people say that and say, hey, it's okay. I, I still for me personally, I'm always like power through, right? And it's it's like it, I right. could feel my shoulders going down and relaxing. I'm like just watching you say, hey, I wasn't okay. So it's and then that's all right. And I don't know, that's a powerful message. Yeah, so I remember that day vividly because I think for a couple, three weeks or maybe even more, I was doing regular Friday videos uh, on social media, just, you know, sharing where I was with people and what's going on. And it was early on in the pandemic. And that week I was just struggling. But I, I have to be honest, it wasn't, all, it was, wasn't just the pandemic that was getting the best of me. From the summer of 2019, I started to have similar thoughts to what I was having back when I was playing in LA. So I don't know. I don't really know. I have an idea, but I'm not really entirely sure why they started or how they started. But I started to have all these thoughts that were starting to become controlling. And uh, I'm happy to say, Craig, I'm seeing somebody now. Yeah. And uh, I'm seeing somebody weekly, even though I feel that I'm doing way better. But I just feel I need the uh, assurance again and just share uh, about what I'm going through. And, oh, boy, do I ever feel good. Like, I I leave there and I'm just feeling so uh, mentally strong again and that, you know, I, I'm in control again of my thoughts. And so it's been really cool. And, and I just love the support I'm getting from other people. It's phenomenal. I'm I'm really interested to hear. Um, I mean, you in telling the story, you kind of flew by the fact that Barry Melrose was so supportive, and and I, you know, we talk about it now and how people are more vocal. 
And, um, you know, that uh, the hockey player in that time, we're talking about a, it's a different conversation. Did you have any anxiety going to Barry or expressing just exactly, even though we know Barry, he's right. a great guy, worked with him at ESPN, has a big heart. Yeah. But in that moment yeah. in time as a hockey player, what kind of you know, second thoughts did you have as you were talking to him about it? Well, I remember when Barry walked into our dressing room. It was a Saturday afternoon. We are playing at home against the Rangers and. Uh, he was followed closely by Tony Robbins. They went into his office, which wasn't unusual. As you remember, Tony was at that time becoming a, you know, a, a really popular figure uh, on television. He had the infomercials and so on. And so because of Wayne Gretzky on the team, we had all sorts of popular people, uh, recognizable people coming into our dressing room before and after games. And so that wasn't unusual, but what was unusual after they went into the office about a minute later, the door opens and Barry motions me over. Mm. And uh, this is how negative I was thinking, Craig. I, I honestly thought, why in the world would Tony Robbins want to meet the worst goalie in the National Hockey League? That's, mm. that's how negative I was thinking about myself. So I went in there and uh, the introductions were made. And I've got to tell you, because I was fully aware of Tony and what he, what he does. I had no hesitation whatsoever in sharing what I was going through because I didn't like it, right? The, right? the game had me on my knees. I was so desperate to, to find a way out of this. Uh, and so uh, Barry, after he made the introduction, Barry said, would you mind, Kelly, if I sat in uh, with you and Tony? Now, that would com- you know, completely be on me because that's a, that's a pretty private conversation, right? That's... That's like going into a doctor and, and saying the same thing. And, and so that's, you know, full disclosure. I had the right at that point to say, Barry, I'm not comfortable. Would you please leave? And I, I'm happy to, to work with Tony. But I thought, more importantly, that, like I said, back in 92, nobody's talking mental health. Right? Right, and right. Not, not even in sports. Nobody's really talking mental health. No, no men are getting together talking about how you're doing and what you need. Right. right. So it was, it was a really cool uh, breakthrough for me. And so, uh, I, I said, of course you can. And, uh, that was kind of cool for me. And, and then as you guys know, Craig, uh, Tony's like six, nine <laughs> and, and I kind of knew what was happening here. So I was sitting in a chair and, Barry sitting in his chair to the right of me and Tony standing right in front of me. So mm-hmm. he's towering over me now because he, he hasn't uh, chosen to sit down. He's, he's making that effect very, very clear to me. And then we started chatting about me and, uh, you know, it was uh, just great. Cause I got it. I got really open right away. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I didn't like where I was and I didn't like what I was going through. So I thought the only way, the only path to feeling better was to share with him what I was going through. So we had some really uh, private conversations. Uh, I, I, I can't remember how many times I met with Tony, but it was uh, just incredible to have that experience. And, and yeah, it was, I just, I've always thought, kind of to a certain degree how brave of uh, Barry to take that step also because sure you know like right so that was so unconventional back at that time I'll tell you also a year later our team was struggling and Barry brought in Tony to speak to the entire group and and I must say I don't think that was entirely received all that well also there were a lot of guys that were skeptical about having a guy like Tony coming in talking to the group. And, and so I found it really great because I knew what Tony uh, did. And I, I experienced firsthand how much, what kind of impact it can have on a person. And so uh, that was great. And it, it, ha- it worked for a short order, but we were kind of slumping that year and we didn't quite make the playoffs. But nonetheless, I, as you can tell from the emotion in my voice, I'm a big believer in it. I, I think, that uh, if possible, if you're, you are somebody out there struggling, talk to somebody. Don't do it alone because there's no need to go through all that pain alone. It's so do- so darn tough. Yeah. I, it's funny that you bring this up, that Tony, I, I just finished reading um, his book, Awaken the Giant Within. And, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't familiar with him at all. Like I just wasn't, you know, paying attention when he really hit the scene or wasn't, you know, too yeah. young or whatever. 
And I had yeah. no idea he was was in NHL dressing rooms talking to players. It seems it does seem like an um, a, I would say a contrast in styles in terms of his personality versus the NHL mentality. Yeah, but it's interesting when when you work with Tony, as I did one on one, you talk about yourself and you open up about what you're going through, what you're feeling. Now, in fairness, uh, and the person I'm seeing right now has said to me that I happen to be very honest early. Like I, uh, I don't like what I'm going through when I'm going through stuff. So I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait for three or four or five sessions to really express myself. And so I think that's why I kind of had a really early connection with Tony also, because man alive, I was like, I was really, really, really mightily struggling mm. back then. And, why would I want to go through another night like that? Right. Right. Do, do you remember, you mentioned the index cards. Do you remember any tools or kind of things that stuck with, with you in terms of his advice that you think people would benefit from? Well, I had two things about mental health and I had two that were just technical about playing goal. Okay. Um, and so the first, of course, as I mentioned, was Schwarzkopf. And the second was my brain was telling me all negative thoughts. And so the big picture that my brain was telling me was everything negative and the little picture that my brain was uh, sort of stifling these thoughts were anything positive. And so I had uh, a, a little quote about that, about turning those thoughts into the big picture needed to be the positive and the little picture that's always going to be there. I had to make that the small picture in my brain. Right, right. And, and then, it sounds, yeah, it, it sounds very simple, but it, it's not right. Because even though I started to feel better after seeing Tony, it took me man alive. I had some decent, really good games actually after, but it took me a full, at least two months to really, really believe it. And mm -hmm. I remember a really cool moment I had uh, with my teammates in Philadelphia, we beat the Flyers 3-1. Uh, the Legion of Doom, I believe, was uh, uh, on the scene at that time. And this was a really important win for us. And I came in the dressing room, and I thanked the guys. Uh, I'm, I may have teared up. I, I know some other guys did because, listen, they stuck with me. Wow. Yeah. Yep. You, so you mentioned that stretch in, in playing – you know, I think of those Kings teams and, and you know, just how, how star-studded they were. And Jeff gave me a heads up. He's like, you do got to ask him the best advice he ever got from Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, my favorite story would be um, we're in like 91 or something. Yeah. And we had a young uh, defenseman from uh, uh, Czechoslovakia still, and his name was Peter Prazler. Okay. And Peter was a, a really highly skilled left-handed shooting defenseman, uh, but he didn't like to get hit. Nobody, I understand, nobody likes to get hit, but he was especially shy of getting hit. And every time it looked as though he might get hit, he'd just throw the puck away. So one time we're playing at home against the Rangers, and uh, it's a tie game in the third period, and Peter's going to, he's behind our net, he's going to get hit, throws the puck away, and the Rangers score the game-winning goal. And I was furious after the game. And normally I was furious after a loss, but typically I'd be only mad at myself. Right. And this night I was furious with Peter and uh, I quickly undress. Wayne undresses quickly and we're in the shower and, and I'm saying a ton of terrible things about Peter Praisler. And I'm sure I was loud enough that the guys in the dressing room heard what I was saying about poor Peter. And I'm throwing shampoo bottles all around. I'm having this, little tantrum it's inexcusable mm -hmm. and uh, I'm finally done my tantrum and Wayne says hey Kelly let everybody earn a living if Peter's not good enough we'll find somebody else and I thought man that's graceful under pressure right like all the mm -hmm. pressure on Wayne to turn the franchise around and and it wasn't at all costs Peter Peter didn't deserve that treatment I was ashamed of myself so mm -hmm. that would be the best uh, advice Wayne ever gave me and uh you can imagine it's how many years later and uh, it still sticks with me. That's amazing. Um, Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I, I also I, I wanted to dive a little bit more if you're, you're willing. You, you mentioned Caitlin and, and her story and, and, mm-hmm. and making it very public. And, um, you know, I've got three kids and, and I, I would say... Again, because they're home and they're learning virtually and we're constantly debating. We don't know if we're doing the right thing. And we like, and I'd say right. mental health is front and center. Like we, you know, in terms yeah. of, yes, we want to protect them from, from the virus, but we also, these kids are, you know, my, my oldest is a teenager in yeah. high school and we're really yeah. struggling with it. And as a dad, when, when you kind of realize you said she was 11, when kind yeah. of she came forward, what was that process like for you? Oh man, that was, uh, that was really, really hard. Um, we knew something was going on. Um, we noticed a lot of different signs, but we kind of thought that they were quirky habits. We didn't really understand ourselves about mental health and what, uh, your kids might be going through. Mm -hmm. And so it was, uh, when she was now 12 years old and we had been going through this for about a year when it was the first day of school, her she was in grade seven, and I wasn't in the car that day. My wife was dropping her off, and she couldn't get out of the car. Caitlin could just not get out of the car. Mm. And as Donna said, if you could only see the sheer look of fear in her eyes. And so it was that day that uh, Donna and I knew that we had to find Caitlin some help, and we were able to. But uh, the, the, it's really important to try and... Uh, understand those signs and now it's a little bit easier because you can do the research you can go on the internet and find out what are some sort of signs to see and and in all honesty I think we should have known I don't I don't regret it I don't you know I didn't know to be looking out for trouble I didn't know trouble was lurking Mm -hmm. but uh, Mm -hmm. I, I think if we would have had a conversation earlier but she by the way for that year leading up to getting diagnosed and going to see her psychologist she was a really good liar right like she was really good at trying to disguise it's fight or flight right and right. So she was really right. good at lying to us about what she was going through which we found out was pretty normal afterwards also but it's it's also important i think to say that yes i i i don't mind sharing my story caitlin doesn't mind sharing her story um, and by the way, she's a phenomenal public speaker. She gets uh, invited to all these events here in Western Canada, and she just amazingly uh, articulate about what she's gone through. But the point I want to really stress to people is that uh, if you are getting help, you in no way, shape, or form are responsible to share that story with others if you don't mm-hmm. want to. It, it's, mm-hmm. your, it's your path. It's your journey. You do not have to share it. In fact, we have somebody else really close to us that is going through something that is, uh, has been seeing uh, psychologists for years, and they don't want to share their story, and that's perfectly fine. I don't want to make it. I don't want people to make it feel like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing somebody. I've already uh, now all of a sudden have to share this with the world. That's right. not my intent at all. I feel comfortable doing it. And I I feel that I'm helping others, but it's it's in no way. If you don't feel like you can, you don't have to. Mm. How is she doing? Like, it's in, in terms of getting through it all. No. Yeah, man, she's doing great. Um, she always has to stay on top of it, as uh, we know. This is a lifelong um, thing for Caitlin, and uh, she gets help from time to time. She doesn't need to go on a regular basis, but right now, uh, she's doing great. She got married this past summer, and uh, her and her husband are doing really well. Um, it was interesting going into the start of the pandemic when the numbers started to rise. And by the way, Craig, her thoughts are they revolve around dying and diseases. So every day, this is, this is not an exaggeration. She wakes up every day and she has to control her thoughts about dying and getting some sort of uh, uh, new disease. It, mm-hmm. it could be it, sometimes we joke about like, hey, what do you have today? And she said, well, OK today I have leukemia or 
you know, I might have a brain tumor. It, it's just random things. Um, and, you know, we can joke about it at certain times. Certainly when she's going through something, we can't. But if she's in a good place, we can. But getting back to my story about the pandemic, we were so afraid about what she might be going through as the numbers were going up. You know, every day on the news, you're, you're listening to a new story about uh, how bad it's getting. And so we asked her uh, point blank about how, how she's doing with her thoughts. And she goes, Mom, Dad every day is a pandemic for me. Like mm. I wake up every day with these thoughts. So, you know, it was quite the eye opening thing for us to hear that. Like, yeah, you're right. Like you, you've been doing this for what she's 28 years old since she's been 11. She's been waking up every day with thoughts of this. And so it was quite, uh, I guess, nice for us to hear that this isn't creating more, uh, trouble for her and that she she can manage it and, and by the way going back to when that earlier conversation uh, about that loop she yeah. taught us so yeah. much about breaking uh, that loop and those irrational thoughts that she wakes up to every single day and and she has the tools um, luckily um, most days I'd say I hesitate a little bit there most days I say that she does really well at uh, managing those uh, awful thoughts mm. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, yes. And so, and I promise for people that want to talk hockey, we'll get we'll get there. But there's one other topic <laughs> I I wanted to get I wanted to chat with you about because I thought during the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, that night um, when the N- NBA stopped playing and the NHL didn't, um, you said what was on a lot of our minds, and I. I um, and I'm thankful for it because that's not easy to say, right? Because I'm sure on a lot of levels, it wasn't a popular sentiment in circle in certain, you know, circles. Was that something you're like, I have to say this or was it like, it just came out? Like what was, can can you take it, take me behind that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I'll start that day by somewhere around 1230 in the afternoon. I think we're going to air around, Five or five thirty my time in, in in Calgary, and I started to pay attention to what was happening in the NBA and the players talking of boycotting the games, and and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. This is really uh, something that I think I thought was pretty uncomfortable for me to share. Right. And David Amber sent out an email to us, the guys that were going to be on the panel that night that we should have a conversation about it. So I got on the phone to David and I said, Hey, um, here's where, here's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. And I told him about our family that I think about two years before that we had been having at our dinner table. Um, I think like a lot of families discussions about important topics like this, like black lives matter and, and, uh, racial injustice and social injustice and all these important topics because our kids are older, right? They're, in their thirties and twenties. And so these are conversations that we would have at the dinner table and try and figure out to, you know, the way the world's going and what we can do better as a family. And, and certainly my kids have been really great for me. And, uh, um, and so I told David about this and I'm still trying to learn. Um, I'm doing my utmost best to learn about, uh, topics like Black Lives Matter and other things that are important to all of us. And, and I said, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable sharing what I'm thinking. And as it became closer to going to air, it looked as though we were going to have the conversation. I, I kept texting David throughout the afternoon. And then about an hour before going to air, I had some conversations with some of my bosses and some of my producers about what I was thinking. And they were Craig, they were awesome. They yeah. said, you know, Kelly, if you're not comfortable, you don't have to go on air tonight or you don't have to share what you're thinking. It's totally up to you. And by the way, we will support you in whatever uh, you decide to do. So <clears throat> I had that in mind. And then I about a 45 minutes before going to air, I had the conversation with my wife and she said, she, this is the best advice, by the way. She said, well, if you choose not to go to air and express yourself, People just think that you have the day off mm. and, and they, they won't know your true feelings. And so 
I thought, yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. So I went down to my office and kind of gathered my thoughts. And if you watch the video, you know, I just spoke from the heart. I didn't have anything prepared, really. I just thought that uh, the NHL and the Players Association uh, didn't need to be playing that night. And that I thought there was more important that because of what was going on in the States uh, in particular, that we as family should have just been talking about what's going on and, and what we can do better. Mm-hmm. And so I expressed that. And to your point about the backlash, there was some backlash for sure. But the way I view it is, um, you know, I think I said the right thing and I, I don't backtrack. I don't, I don't apologize for it. I, in my heart, I believe it was the right thing to do. And the next day, I, I, by the way, I kind of thought I might get fired for it because I didn't know, you know, it's right, one right. of our full, our full support. But until you, you do get your full support, you're like, mm, I don't know here. But <laughs> yeah. so <laughs> the next day I woke up to three uh, voicemail messages from three of my bosses at uh, Rogers and Sportsnet. And they all gave me their full support and they stand behind me and beside me and, that was really great to hear. And uh, I guess one of my bosses said that there's quite the uh, the hatred out there and uh, that they supported me. And, and that was really great to hear. Yeah. It, no, it, it, it is great to hear, especially you don't know with like a rights holder. And, you know, there's all these different kind of things that go into the equation. And, um, yeah. you know, and, and it really like for me in the, in the, in working for a company where the other writers are covering these, these huge moments in other sports, it was, I was almost embarrassed to be covering like, and I hate to say this, but you know what I mean? I was like, Oh, we're going to act like nothing is happening in this moment. And right. it, like, it was really hard for us, you know, just to, to figure out the, the right way to, to do it. And I was glad like the next day, you know, the, the, you know, the, the whole story emerged when they, you know, with Kevin Shattenkirk and they, the players kind of reaching out to each other, it, it got where it needed yeah. to go. And I was, uh, you know, and then you're like, okay, I feel, I feel much better about the sport, even for yeah, momentarily. Was, absolutely. It was very emotional to say that, though, because when I woke up the next day and I got the uh, three phone calls, I was, uh, I don't know how to put it, but I don't know if I'll describe it accurately, but I was exhausted. Yeah, um, yeah. And so... Uh, even though I was really glad that the NHL and the PA decided to take the two nights off, I couldn't have gone on air that night. I was just totally exhausted from, from that day and just the emotional, uh, uh, not stress. Cause it wasn't stress. It was just the emotion of that night was, was really, it had taken its toll on me. Right. Right. Well, anytime you put yourself out there, right, like that, and even if you yeah. if you you're not feeling the backlash or you're seeing it, and you even intrinsically you know it exists. Right? That's that can right. that can add its own layer of stress. Yes, it can, and and that's where you know I think you know you know me on social media. Yeah. I I use I try and use my voice in a positive way, virtually all the time. I I don't ever uh, you know express myself to people that uh, don't like me or think that I'm an idiot for saying whatever I might say, right. whether it's a, an important topic like Black Lives Matter or talking about mental health or something as silly as uh, my thoughts about a hockey game. I, right. I don't, I don't do that. I, I taught, I was taught something from uh, a co-worker of mine, Shirley Najak and just a, a mm. great soul. And uh, he always says, you can come at a topic from one of two places with a black heart, which is, uh, hatred or a red heart, which is love. And I've, I've chosen to do the red heart. Mm. I love that. That's great. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So two people in one, one, um, again, I got tipped off from Jeff here, but I just had a phone conversation two days ago with Dean Lombardi because I had heard um, he he had had made this speech before the start of the 2016 World Cup that he was a GM for Team USA that players 
like we're still ta- like it, it went terribly for the Americans. They went zero and three and were bounced. So obviously the speech didn't work, and Dean kind of laughed about that. But he, you know, his passion and and the way he conveyed it to these players are like it was one of the best speeches I've ever seen. And you know, I was we were doing a story with the Olympics one year out, and I, I used that anecdote in the story. And so it was a reason to call Dean. It was I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed talking to him just because, you know, when, when he's not front and center anymore, uh, you know, working in the Flyers yep. organization and he's off. I think he said he's he's now officially a cowboy and he got his, uh, you know, he's off on horses wrangling cattle and, and you know, <laughs> enjoying life. <laughs> um, so but it was he's he's such a unique person. Um it's intelligent and he was talking about some kind of psychology stuff he's studying and i just love people like that where you never know where the conversation is going and i was and jeff's like hey you got to ask him about dean i'm like oh i like what what is it about dean that that you connected with so much Uh, i love him uh he he might be uh the most thoughtful guy i've ever come across in the hockey industry and i'll give you a couple of stories about i don't know why but it was instantaneous i think my connection to him. I can't speak for Dean. I don't know if he had that same sort of feeling towards <laughs> right. me, but we've had some incredible conversations over the years. But the year I became a free agent in 96, uh, the Sharks, he was the general manager at the time, and the Sharks were interested. Uh, and uh, so I was going to fly from Calgary with my family, and we were going to make the, uh, the introduction to the Sharks organization, and Dean and uh, Wayne Thomas, his assistant general manager, and it was really cool because uh, Dean and, and Wayne met my family and I at the airport in San Fran. And what really struck me early on is that they had gifts for our kids. They had Sharky, you know, the, the mascot, they had the Sharky uh, teddy bears and all these little cute things for the kids. And I thought that was very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we go to the hotel and the next day I had to meet with Dean and Wayne two days in a row. Um, and just, they wanted to find out about me and each meeting was over two hours and and that had never happened in my career at that point. Mm. You know, most hockey meetings were quite short, you know, a long one might be 10 or 15 minutes, not, not over two hours, two consecutive days. And I thought that was really cool. And, and he got right to the point. Dean asked some really incredible questions early on that there, there was no escaping them. Like I couldn't give a standard cliche answer there. I have, in fact, I'll tell you, in fact, I'll tell you the first one. Um, and I have to leave out some words cause there might've been the odd swear word in there, but <laughs> yeah. it was, it was why in the world would the Kings trade for Grant Fuhr when they have you? So as you can tell, there is no escaping that. <laughs> There's no cliche answer for that one. Right. Yeah. You have to address it as best as you can. And as clear as you can with what you uh, honestly felt. And mm-hmm. so I did. And so I gave my answer. And then it was, I was sort of explaining kind of what I thought. And part of it was because I said the GM, I didn't think the GM trusted me anymore. And he goes, well, how would you know that? Can you read minds? <laughs> this whole thing, like, oh my gosh, he is the, he, I'm going to love this guy because this is kind of what I like. Yeah. You know, I just had this experience with Tony Robbins a number of years ago and just to be honest. And so we had these great conversations over the course of two days. They agreed that I was a fit. And uh, so I signed a two-year deal. Now here's the, the other interesting thing about Dean. I, I don't think it's for everybody, but it is for me. My last year, I, I, I knew going into the season that it was going to be my last year in the NHL. It, it was my 15th year. I was growing weary. Um, my my physical talents were, you know, they weren't quite as great as they were. It was a challenge to to practice with all the young guys now. I had to mentally prepare for practice, which, you know, normally when you're in your, your heyday, it just, it just magically happens, right? You, right? you know, you go out there and you can stop pucks and you don't have to really put your thinking cap on at all. And, and, and most importantly, I knew this was time for me to go. My lawyer asked me, well, why do you, how do you know Lloyd Friedland from New York? And, and I go, well, I can, this is as simple as I can tell you, Lloyd, wins aren't as special anymore and losses don't hurt as much. And mm. to me, that was the biggest thing. And so 
at the near the end of that year, I think it was in March, and we played at home, and I think I lost 2-1 to Dallas. And Dean calls me into the office the next day, and he goes, so what are you thinking for next year? And I'm thinking, I, I kind of had that door open just a crack yet, and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to wait and see, but I'm really leaning towards retirement. And he goes, well, I think you should retire. And I go, why is that? He goes, well, when I watch you, you look like you're scared to play now. You're 37 years old and you look like you're scared to play. And oh my gosh, it was like a relief. I, I just thought, wow, somebody that's honest with me again, because that, that is exactly what I was feeling. I was scared to play. I was kind of scared that I was going to hurt my team and kind of scared that I was going to embarrass myself and mm. that I, I didn't have the skills any longer. And so that's Dean perfectly, right? He, and you know, and they traded for Steve Shields at the end of the season. And Dean called me cause he's a stand up guy and he made it, uh, you know, really clear that he appreciated my two years there. And, uh, man, we've had some great conversations over the course of time and, and, you know, that little conversation really stuck with me because I did have, I think, two teams that expressed interest that summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I said no. And, and that was the best thing I could have ever done. I It opened up a career for me on Hockey Night in Canada and Sportsnet. And, you know, I never looked back whatsoever. And I never for a moment ever regretted it. My wife, by the way, thought I should have played one more year. She thought I had it in me and, and I knew I didn't. Hmm. That's really interesting because we've seen it. Um, I'm in Detroit and I've watched, you know, Jimmy Howard kind of go through that. Jimmy Howard didn't have a great year last year, but definitely had opportunities. And, you know, yeah. in, I was texting, you know, Wash, I know Wash reached out to him. And um, I think Elliot reported that Edmonton did. And, right. you know, I think that would be so hard. But, you know, Jimmy's such an honest guy. I feel like it's the same thing you were thinking. Like if he couldn't do it the way he wanted to do it, then he can't, you know. You just know. Yeah, I think I think I can't speak for Jimmy, but for me, I think what it was kind of made it easier for me, Craig, is that I, like I retired at 37. It wasn't like I had to retire because of injury problems at 26 or, you know, at a younger age where I, I knew I still had plenty of good years ahead if I if I wasn't injured. I, I mean, I was just to play till you're 37 years old is, you know quite a I think quite an accomplishment and there's nothing to be ashamed of that's a that's a pretty darn long career right right was that was the um, media transition pretty natural for you because I know you're doing it even right right in the middle of it all <laughs> I don't know if I'd say natural some people <laughs> thought that I, I was okay at it but I found it to be really really challenging um, you know it's it's not as though you're given that sort of training when you're a player. Now, yeah. you're, granted, you are interviewed a lot, but to be a uh, a person that does interviews and to really express yourself clearly is, uh, you know, it was a work in progress. I'm I'm lucky uh, to say that I had great people around me that had patience with me and and allowed me to grow and and be my own my own self. I, I will say this too. Again, speaking about Dean because he knew my passion for broadcasting. Uh, that was one of the questions when he was thinking of uh, signing me. He goes, why would I want to sign a goalie that has more interest in being a broadcaster? Mm. And that, of course, that wasn't, of course, at the time. I, I did have a interest in broadcasting, but I, I wanted that down the road, not at that time. And uh, But by the way, as a gift uh, to me, uh, Dean Lombardi, after I had retired and decided to move into broadcasting, he, the Sharks were going to pay for me to go to broadcasting school in Los Angeles. And hmm. uh, I, told, I told my employer at Hockey Night in Canada this, and uh, it was John Shannon. And uh, he said, well, that's, that's a phenomenal gesture, but I would prefer if you turned it down because we would like to teach you our way, our CBC Hockey Night in Canada way. Interesting. And so, yes. And so I did just that. I turned it down. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I kind of wonder what would have happened if I take, had taken up that offer, uh, would it have helped my skills or 
would it have taken me in a different direction? Now, I'll never know, and I don't really think much about it, but, you know, I, I've also been pretty fortunate to be in, in full-time broadcasting for what I think. Yeah, it's worked out okay, out I would say, yeah. Yeah, I think it turned out okay. <laughs> so, I'd be curious, though, what was John's, like, was there, did he articulate what the Hockey Night in Canada way is? Like, was it like, hey, well, this is the style we want out of our analysts? Yeah, for me, I think it was more that uh, I just had my own my own way of broadcasting, and it it wasn't a polished professional look. It was just my guy from Edmonton growing up that mm-hmm. had some uh, uh, broadcasting experiences that I guess may have translated well at the time to the Canadian public, and and that uh, again, like I said, they could have hired anybody that was a polished broadcaster, but they chose to take a shot at me and, uh, and the way in which I told my story. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm really appreciative of that, that, uh, I didn't really, I didn't have to change much. I had to, of course, improve, but I didn't really have to change much about me. I think what works best is, and you didn't maybe, I don't know if people were using this word then as they are now, but authenticity, right? Like there's, yeah. If you go to broadcasting school and you come out and you're Ron Burgundy or something, you're no longer, right. you know, what, what the, I think that connection and being authentic, even if it's not perfect, yeah. goes a long way with listeners or viewers. I agree with that. And uh, I think that, uh, yeah, authenticity wasn't really used much around that time. I think what I always said, the camera can tell a fake. Mm. And, and that's just what I think. And you know, I, I watch certain broadcasters and, and I just feel that person is amazing because they're just being real. Right. And there are others that I, I sort of think, that, you know, maybe a little more authenticity might help you a little bit. Just be real and and uh, that might help. You know, not that I'm giving out great broadcasting advice here. That's not my role. But uh, I just think that that is something that really separates others uh, uh, from uh, people that do it. But maybe don't have the success that they could have right all right i've got one more for me and then we've got some uh i, I always submit that uh, have have uh listeners submit questions i want to we'll do a little rapid fire at the end there but i wanted to ask sure. about playing for l arbor because i you know i wrote a book on coaching i'm fascinated by leadership i in tactics in the way people motivate and he was before my time and i i he's just somebody i never got to know a lot about in you know or or sit down and spend time with like I've been lucky enough to do with other coaches. What, what did you learn most from, from, from Al? Uh, that he cared about me. Uh, and so mm. that was a quality that really stood out to me. Uh, so I would say that uh, I don't think this is an exaggeration, but 90 to 95% of all the guys that ever played for Al sort of considered him to be like a father figure. I had a phenomenal dad. Uh, nobody replaces, uh, the dad that I had, but Al was, uh, a a close second. He was just a really Mm -hmm. nice man. Don't get me wrong. He could be stern when he needed to, and that, that could be often, but, but he, he just conveyed the thoughts that he really cared about you personally. So every, every single night I went to bed, even if Al got mad at me that day, I always knew he cared about me. And, and that was a cool quality. The other thing Al did, I think he was really, really good at making a connection with you and my teammates about your home life. And so I'll give you an example mm-hmm. that really stands out to me. We played our rival, the New York Rangers, in MSG one night. We, we weren't very good. Al didn't like our work ethic. We lost, of course. And we bust back to Long Island. We're in the parking lot at Nassau Coliseum, uh, about to get into our car. We had a practice the next day. Al stands at the front of the bus and says, I I didn't like your effort tonight. And so you're going to put in a good, long, hard work day tomorrow, just like your parents. You know, you can, can, you have a pretty cushy life, right? Like you, you get up, you go to practice, maybe you practice at 1030, you work hard for an hour, you know, might do a couple other things at the ring, but in all likelihood, you're home by one o'clock in the afternoon. Your parents don't have that luxury. They put in a good, hard eight hour, nine hour day at work. And so Mm -hmm. he said, be prepared to be at the rink at six in the morning and you'll probably stay until five or six in the afternoon. And so 
we'd go there. We'd have uh, R&I session. We'd have video sessions. We'd have meetings. And he, you know, he wouldn't keep us there till five or six, but the message was sent, right? It wasn't, right. It, it wasn't an easy day. And, and I always found that fascinating how he would always make the connection between our e- relatively easy life in comparison to the life that our parents led. And so right. those were, those were the things that Al, I found was, I thought he was way ahead of his time. It, it mm. certainly there were X's and O's and there was execution and there was, uh, you know things you had to do to prepare properly there's of course that's a part part of it also but it was really important to him to make sure that we didn't lose our way because we were ultra privileged right it's it's amazing how easy it is for us to, to convince ourselves like how hard we're working and how difficult things are when you know what i mean like <laughs> I know, it was right? like, oh yeah, I live. I have the dream scenario. I have the dream job. I really do, and I know that. And then there's times I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted. I got to watch a hockey game. It's like, wait, I didn't say that out loud. I hope, but right. you know, that sounded terrible. Oh, that's yeah, fantastic. Right? What did your folks do? I came from parent. My parents were teachers, so I, I've got a big like education is such a huge thing. Like learning right. and, and growth right. is such a big thing for me. Cool. Uh, my dad. Uh, worked for bottling companies. Uh, later, later on, it was uh, well, it was Orange Crush early on. It was called Prairie. Uh, oh my gosh, I, uh, Prairie Bottling, and uh, and uh, then for Pepsi, and he fixed pot machines. And so, one of my my great joys as a kid was uh, on occasion, uh, I would get to go to places like drive-in theaters where he fixed the pot dispensers, and you know, hang out with my dad for the day. Uh, if he was on call, and my mom uh, sold children's shoes at a clothing place in Edmonton called Jack and Jill, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and so you know, real honest, down to earth people. Mm-hmm. In fact, they gave me the greatest, and my brother and I, the greatest gift ever, and I pass that on to my children: a love for the mountains, because we couldn't afford uh, uh, an expensive vacation. The only thing we would do. And I, by the way, I, I didn't mean the only thing because that sounded kind of dismissive and it's not. Um, we went on camping trips to the Canadian Rockies. So uh, it was a magical gift they gave my brother and I. Uh, I still, my favorite place uh, in the world, uh, the Canadian Rockies. Uh, when that time comes, I hope my final final vacation is in the Canadian, Canadian Rockies. And by the way, I wanted to be, I didn't ever have any aspirations about being a professional athlete or professional broadcaster, I wanted to be a park warden in Banff or Jasper or Yoho National Park, oh. something like that. And I always joked, that, but the stupid game got in the way. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of joked about it. But, uh, you know, I've always had a love for the mountains. And, uh, yeah, that that's so my parents uh, gave us the greatest gift. And I, I still, to this day, whenever I'm going to go, to the mountain parks. It's uh, something I really, really look forward to. And I'm lucky here in Calgary. I literally, literally live an hour from the Canadian Rockies. I'm jealous. All right. We didn't leave much, much time for these submitted questions, but I do want to get to them because I offered it up to to people, to followers. So this first one, and this might be a tough one for you because I know you're, you know, you're covering the Canadian division and it's not always easy to get a look around, but uh, Michael Sherline is asking about Sorokin. Uh, If, if, if you think it's his struggles, who right now is sitting at uh, 2 and one with an eight seventy one save percentage with the Islanders? Do you think it's, he needs more time in North America? Is it nerves? No fans? A little bit of everything? He's made yeah. incredible athletic saves so far. We got to get this kid a win. What do you think of you know a slow start for a young talented kid? I would agree with all of the above. Uh, his first start was under unreal uh, circumstances. That, that's no way to get your first start in the league where the starting goalie is injured in warm-up and you're thrown mm-hmm. into the situation. Uh, I just think it's a combination of, it's an entirely different game over here than it is uh, overseas. Um, there's the mental stress of making that transition coming from uh, overseas to North America, the language, everything about it. I, I think the pandemic, um, uh, that the stress of that, uh, the the pressure listen he he came highly regarded right and so uh you want to be outstanding right off the get-go and oftentimes that isn't the case so i i kind of think i'm more excited to watch how he develops over the course of the next few weeks and see if 
if this will just be, you know, something in the rearview mirror as opposed to, okay, this could be a year-long thing. By the way, there was a team that did a study a number of years ago now, and they found that it usually takes a player about six months to really properly transition. Now, some guys do it mm. a little bit quicker, but most players can be as long as six months to properly showcase what they really are as a player. Good. All right. This next question, this is timely because we at The Athletic hit a lot of Olympic stuff because it's one year out. Who would you start and go for Canada in 2022 Winter Olympics? Oh, my gosh. You caught me. Uh... <laughs> oh, let me think about this. Uh, yeah, let me see if I can help you I, out by giving our, our rosters. Uh, well, let me see Gary if I can Price find our... be up there. Yeah, I mean, Kerry's. You start the conversation. He's the he. You know, he's the incumbent. So I think yeah. it's. Oh my gosh, uh, who who am I excluding? Or uh, I'm going through the list right now, and and I'm not thinking. Nobody other than Kerry is really popping out to me, and I I'm prob I should probably be ashamed of that because there should be more guys that are standing out to me right now. Um, well, as an American, I'm glad that you're. This isn't an easy answer. I think that's a good no. sign for us that you don't have a slam dunk answer to this. You know how it can change so quickly from year to year. I, you know, if you would have asked me a year, year and a half ago, I would have automatically put Matt Murray at the top of that list too. And that, and that's the, that's what this position does to people. It, you know, when I first saw Matt Murray live. And, and I don't do this often. I'm not usually one to exaggerate. I said something like, oh, my gosh, he is the best young goalie I've ever seen in my life. And I never would have expected that he would have struggles in the game. And look at this. Mm-hmm. You know, a few years oh, later, and, and the game is incredibly hard for him right now. So I guess once we get closer to that date, then hopefully I'll have a better answer. How does that sound? That's fair. That's the other guy that we've kind of were kicking around internally, and, and I think a year will help decide this is Carter Hart. Like, is he a guy that I know yeah. he's super young, um, but maybe you want you know he's twenty two. He'll be twenty three next year when the the Olympics, and and that's that's asking a lot to put it your is. nation on your backs at twenty three years old. But boy, he yes. sure, certainly shows the signs that he could be the guy. You're right, and uh, yeah, he he's a really good candidate for that. All right, last one is. Uh, are Matthew Kachuk's antics going to catch up with him? As an American, I, I, I'm interested in this answer, too. Yeah, first of all, I, I'm going to have to tell you, I'm biased because I do Flames games. And so yeah. uh, up until the pandemic, I was around him, and he's a really great kid. And, he and is. So, he is. Yes. I would say my answer will be unequivocally no, because he respects the game. Like, there's mm. you know some young players, they're really good at the game, but I don't know if they entirely – respect the game or know of the history of the sport. And that's been really cool about uh, his parents that they taught him about the importance of knowing some of the history of the game and respecting the game itself and the players that uh, play now and the players that uh, played previously. And so I really think because he plays so close to the line, that doesn't mean that he just respects the game or, or takes himself more seriously than others. And, so that might be an answer that people don't like, but I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like uh, if you don't know Brad Marchand, is that the same sort of thing? And 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 although sometimes I think Brad crosses the line, I've said it on television a few times, I still highly respect what he does and, uh, and in most cases how he goes about his business. So a couple of times I think he's crossed the line, and, and Matthew has already as well, but you know, you, you cannot, uh, you know, underestimate uh, how good they are as players. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Kelly, we're out of time, but this was awesome. What an easy conversation. Thank you so much for doing that. It was great. My pleasure, Craig. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it as well. And if you ever need to chat again, please give me a call. <laughs> I will. I will. Thanks a lot. Okay, Next okay. time we'll do another Zitnik. We'll do two more segment, segments on Zitnik. <laughs> <Just> to- <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right? That's hilarious. Uh, that was great. Thanks, Kelly. Okay, thanks, my friend. I want to thank Kelly Rudy for joining the podcast again. So sometimes um, when I do these, I know the guests really well, and I'm sure you can probably feel that during the conversation. Sometimes it takes a minute to get there. Um, Kelly was one of those guys who 
I don't I don't know Kelly really well. Obviously, I know of him. Uh, you know, watched him play and watched him on television. Um, but I felt like you know I felt like the second we started talking that we'd known each other for a long time. And I I feel like I want to call him now and, and hash over things and chat with him even more. What a great dude! You can tell. Um, just a very real person, um, cares about people. The hockey space needs more people like Kelly. So thank you, Kelly, for doing, doing the, doing the podcast. It was, it was really good. And I appreciate the time. It's funny. I'm sitting here and as we speak, um, just got off the phone with Rob Rossi, who covers the Penguins for us. And we were just talking over the hire of Brian Burke and Ron Hextall in Pittsburgh and holy cow, what a process that was. You know, I don't think anybody was too surprised to see Ron Hextall land the GM position. And when you look at what he was able to do with the Philadelphia Flyers, how he, you know, that team was in really good shape when Chuck Fletcher took over. A lot of good young talent. Um, I, I think that he certainly has earned the opportunity and it's a good fit. What I am fascinated by is the Brian Burke element. And if you haven't listened to the Brian Burke conversation, um, from the full 60. This isn't the whole, you know, I'm not doing this to have you go listen to it, but it was really good. And Brian is passionate and Brian um, isn't afraid of the bold move. And if I was critical of one thing with the Flyers is it seemed like there was a bit of um, too much patience. There didn't seem to be that aggressiveness. Um, and, you know, we've, see, we've seen a success when teams come in and, and make some changes Some GMs make changes. Uh, we saw it in Carolina and we saw it with Philly. When when Chuck Fletcher took over, I, I think the balance of Brian Burke in that, um, I would say aggression, and, and he's got that same Jim Rutherford style that has worked well with the Penguins and kept things fresh, and and, and you know that aggression is going to serve them well as they're pursuing a Stanley Cup. But what makes the the team and that combo so interesting to me is at some point they're going to have to be patient and they're going to have to draft and develop and they're going to have to turn the page. And in, in you look at Ron Hextall and the fit there and the patience he's shown in his career and the talent evaluation he's shown. And, you know, I remember when he was with the Kings, Dean Lombardi would talk about this is a guy that was willing to put in the work and drive thousands of miles to scout players. And, like, this wasn't a guy riding on his name. He, he puts in the work. He evaluates players. I think the Penguins – I think – I think that match is going to work. I think they're going to complement each other really well. And um, I'm I'm fascinated to see how it plays out. So I don't know, just, that was on my mind after talking to Rossi a second ago. Um, all right, to wrap up here, um, make sure you listen to Mike Russo and his podcast, Straight From The Source. He's got original wild forward Cam Stewart on the podcast. And Jason Spezza joined Pierre Lebron and Scott Burnside on Two Man Advantage edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. And that's great. And if you haven't listened to Ian Mendez, Haley Salvian, and Sean McIndoe with the Athletic Hockey Show, uh, it's on Monday and Thursdays. Their version, it's great. It's They're, they're, they're fun to listen to. They're, it's way more topical than anything I'm doing here. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. Last thing, if you're not subscribing to The Athletic and you want to get a deal, go to theathletic.com slash full60 and you get in for $3.99 per month. All right, thanks again to Kelly for joining the podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great week.